Andrew. And I'm Spencer, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with Dina Hagag, the president and CEO of United States Artists, a national arts funding organization based in Chicago. Before joining United States Artists in February 2017, she was the executive director of The Contemporary, a nomadic and non-collecting art museum in Baltimore. As one of the leading voices in arts and culture today, Dina has a broad, holistic understanding of the power of art to shift public opinion and point us to the possibilities of a new future. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Dina. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. So we're speaking on June 2nd. It's a catalytic moment for our country. And I'm just wondering what's on the top of your mind as you wake up this morning, I guess. Oh, man. I am just thinking about how insidious anti-Blackness is. I'm thinking about how quickly... Uh, American imperialism is crumbling and how how what it feels like to watch black people ask for justice when perhaps they should be seeking revenge mm. <laughs> for the system that they built that wantonly wants them dead. But this morning, um, I mean, that's kind of the big thought this morning. I am trying to fathom this particular president and not the administration because I am trying to remember that anti-Blackness is a nonpartisan issue, right? That it exists under all presidents. But I am really just struck by the strategy and cowardice of this particular individual. And somehow I don't know how it gets even more disappointing every morning, but... Here we are. Sorry, dude, just let's get us right <laughs> off to a really a touching and inspiring start. Exactly. We're experiencing two viruses at once, COVID-19 and just systemic racism. How do you think our current leadership is handling both of these lethal threats to our species, to our culture, to our society? I mean, I think our current leadership knows exactly what it's doing, right? Our current leadership isn't failing us. Our current leadership is organizing against us. It is in the best interest of our current leadership to keep people sick and poor and disenfranchised and to call for violence against them, right? So I think this morning there was footage, I think, in Philadelphia of private citizens now arming their own streets, sort of against protesters and acting as sort of de facto police. And I think our current leadership more or less called for that. So I don't expect anything from our current leadership. I think the question I'm asking myself is how do we survive this current leadership? Not how is it like failing us? I think this particular administration is the culmination of many viruses in this country. I did see something that made me laugh. I've been trying to find like moments of humor all week, but there was a tweet, I don't remember who said it, that just said 2020 is giving off some serious season finale vibes. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that tweet too. (laughs) And I am like, Lord (laughs) Almighty, let us survive these last few months of hopefully this person's first term. And again, I don't think voting for a new president is necessarily going to solve any of this, Mm. but in the very least, 
maybe not someone so overtly and publicly trying to kill their own citizens would be nice. And essentially using these protests as campaign rallies. I mean, they're serving what he can't do at this moment. They're speaking very directly to his base. Yes. You were obviously talking to the systemic racism virus. What what have you been thinking about when it comes to just COVID-19? So many things. I was sick for a long time and had to be quarantined as a result of that and made a lot of friends in the sort of disability arts space. And there's this kind of unofficial, someone like doula'd me into disability, for lack of a better word. And I think... You know, artists make language and artists make spaces and artists can bring people together in ways that I think are really critical. And after I got sick, a lot of disabled artists like sort of brought me in to a space to think about my body, its relationship to myself and to society in a way I had just never had to really consider prior. COVID has asked a lot of non-disabled people to be home and to think to have a relationship to their bodies and to other people's bodies that I don't think they've really had to think about before. And I think the thing I've been realizing is um, this is not like a social distancing issue. It's a physical distancing issue. Yep. And the social exists in so many different ways. And I think COVID has really laid bare. And I always kind of knew this, but there are not enough conversations around disability and body and capitalism that can help people weather a pandemic at this scale and one that I don't think is the only one we'll experience in our lifetime. And so I've just been thinking a lot about how grateful I am to be in disability community because the pandemic, while is a is a very scary thing for disabled people in a super different way, the social aspects of it I think it's really powerful in a way that I haven't really seen across our institutions. And I think watching a protest happen in COVID is fascinating because essentially many thousands of people are willing to risk this physical distance to make a social impact at a time when they really are risking like life limb and arrest to do that. So I don't know, I've just been thinking a lot about If we spoke more openly about disability, we would have weathered COVID entirely differently. Your own experience with disability, of course, you you had contracted or developed bone cancer and then had had a surgery. Mm -hmm. And you spoke once about how it shifted your relationship to time. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear more about how that process occurred and how you've drawn on that in this moment, similar to what you were just talking about. Yeah, so I think, you know, this thing called crip time exists in disability space where things can't just move. So I think for me, I can't rush anymore necessarily. There are certain things that will just not get done if my body can't rally around those things. It took years to feel comfortable doing that because I'm an incredibly aggressive person who is profoundly competitive and just loves to get things done. And at a certain point, the body just can't be there. And one thing I I think is kind of incredible is being on all these Zoom calls in the middle of the pandemic and watching people's real life affect their time, like their kids walking in, there's like a leaf blower outside the window. You know, you can't squeeze everything into the meeting because time sometimes is bigger than your intentions for it. And I think something about getting sick 
really makes your indentions of time feel pretty ridiculous. But crib time is really fascinating because I think there's just not an undue pressure on a kind of productivity that is really quite unsustainable for someone who is just really exhausted. Mm -hmm. That part was incredibly humbling. And I think having to experience that, I feel like has made me more empathetic as a professional. Mm. Especially now, like I run an arts organization. Is there such a thing as an arts emergency? Like, is it okay if a black staffer needs to take the week off to cope with this? Is it okay if a parent has two young kids and just can't make staff meeting and thus can't get their work in right now? Like, can I find a humility and a humanity in other people's time? And I don't know that I would have been able to do that before I got sick. And I can definitely tell you now in the after, the work still gets done and things are still great. Yeah. Even if we are a little bit more flexible about other people's time and our own. Amazing. I wanted to shift a little bit to um, back to the current moment we're in, and it seems like image has become this effective weapon, right? The video of mm -hmm. Floyd's murder led to this mm -hmm. public response essentially, or the lack of response to the video led to the public response. What do you think this reveals about the power of art to lead society? I think images are, the New York Times cover a few weeks ago that mm -hmm. listed like a thousand of the 100,000 people we've lost. I think it's really strange to be living in a pandemic and not see it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Sarah Lewis, I don't know if you know her work, she's a, a historian at Harvard and she writes a lot about how image making is essentially what leads us towards justice because we have to see it, right? And there's so many histories of this kind of globally. But in this country in particular, image making is profoundly important. And I feel like it's really strange to be living in a pandemic that we can barely see. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to watch protests happening where the images are already being manipulated to tell a story in live time. Mm -hmm. I think images are so important. The question I've been asking myself a lot right now is like, can we still have an objective image? Like, I'm really struck by certain liberal non-Black friends who are posting images of lootings and are saying things like, it's not Black protesters that are doing this. Like, it's someone else. And it's like, well, why can't we let Black people be enraged? Why do we need to already deploy an image that contorts the story to only tell one side? And why are we protecting corporations oh my God. as if they're not part and parcel of the whole situation? I mean, it's amazing that there was, um, and I, I wish I knew her name, but I, I watched a, an organizer addressing her coalition at one of the protests. And she said, where was AutoZone for Philando Castile mm -hmm. in a car, which is the yeah. business they're in? Yep. Where, where was everyone from the corporations? Why shouldn't the looting be happening? Yeah. And I know that's a, a fiery thing, but we should talk about that. We should talk about this idea that when society stops serving people, why do we then expect them to serve society? Yeah. This morning, there was a group of folks cleaning up a Chase Bank. And I'm like, was Chase Bank not the bank we were all furious with two months ago for making the wrong SBA loans? Like, mm -hmm. were those loans not looted for big corporations and small exactly. businesses had to protest Chase Bank to get them to care about the little guy? But now the little guy is out here scraping graffiti off their windows like, honey, Chase Bank will be fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think it's terrifying for people, the image of their world crumbling around them. I think it's scary. I think the thing about looting that I try to remember so much is that capitalism 
is so wrapped up in how we think about whiteness and safety, right? Mm -hmm. And so to watch those things destroyed feels personal. Mm -hmm. It's not that people are protecting the corporation. I think they're protecting a safe way of life for themselves, right? A kind of commitment to a law and order that they were told if they participated in, it would protect them and their families. Yeah, it's no mistake no. that Trump is describing himself now as president of law and order. I mean, it's totally that says it all. Yeah, yeah. I I feel for people that they can't make sense of it, you know? I also, I feel for a lot of small business owners, like who I think are not quite sure how to feel about all of this, you know, especially the ones that want to be in solidarity, but their lived material experience is that this is how they take care of their families. But I think in the U.S., we're like obsessed with a reconciliation narrative and we always want to resolve things really quickly. And I think how folks feel about looting is not simple. It's complicated. And I hope we can like, sit in how complicated that feels before we try to like clean it up. As you've said in the past, the moral infrastructure of this country is doomed unless we let culture lead. Yeah. In every sense, artists are on the front lines of these issues. And I guess what, what, what leads to my previous question is where does art sort of serve us in the emergence from this? How can art help us understand what's happening? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I love about art is it offers me insight into an experience that is not my own. Right. And that insight can be across time, a history that I did not immediately participate in. Like a hundred years from now, my hope is people will understand this moment mm -hmm. through art and journalism and storytelling. It also helps me build kinship with identities I do not own or I, I, I don't experience. And so I think if there's any way to understand people's pain or their frustration, that is maybe how art can serve us now. Mm -hmm. The other side of that, I think, is the art world, which is different. The art worlds, if they will, which are just extensions of really rich and powerful people. And I think if we're really willing to work at this, the art worlds actually have an opportunity to take a stand and to reimagine the roles of their institutions and their financial commitments towards justice. And I think that's where image making really matters. I try to remember that in the 60s, the images that came out that, you know, after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and Kennedy, those were strategic, right? Those were white New Yorkers who went to the South and were willing to put themselves on the line because they knew if an image was captured of them, that was going to change this entire conversation. And I think the art worlds help make images of the times we live in. And I hope that our institutions double down on that responsibility and on the power that we have. But I, it's been hard to divorce like the things we expect from artists versus the things we expect from the institutions <laughs> that supposedly like protect artists. And I think those two things also are complicated and need to be treated very acutely so that we can move forward. Connected to this, could you talk about art just as a tool to connect us as a species? Yeah, I mean, I think language is how we connect as a species, right? Like all kinds of language, somatic language, spoken language, visual language. And I think artists just make language. The thing I love about art, unlike maybe any other discipline, is that it can really clarify and make legible super complicated stuff. And I think that science 
is not going to help us make sense of racism. Economy is not going to help us make sense of racism. Racism, in addition to an intellectual state, is a feeling state. It's a scourge. And the only way to figure that thing out is through language. And I think what artists can do is they can really clarify language. And I think some of that is storytelling and experiential. Some of the other, it is just audience making, right? And I think artists are really good at figuring out not just how to tell a story, but how to situate that against an audience. I think artists connect human species. I've been really struck by the number of George Floyd murals that are going up all over the world, from Iran to Honduras. I mean, places the U.S. Mm. has invaded for, I mean, it's like the irony, but... It's fascinating to me that like potentially non-English speakers who have no sense of an American context, a nation that has often invaded their own, their gesture at some kind of species solidarity is Mm -hmm. like this mural of this man who was killed and who they feel for. So I think art can do that thing. I just think we have to make space for artists to be able to do it. Right. From your own personal perspective, getting to understand your own identity growing up. Mm -hmm. How did you use art as a tool for that? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So my parents are Egyptian immigrants. They moved to New York in the 80s. And uh, we culturally identify as Arab and Muslims. And we, you know, we're living in the New York region post 9-11. And I think, you know, the Arab world has a lot of conversations. It's just different. My parents frame on the world is really different than my own growing up in the United States. And I think as a first-gen kid, it can be hard to figure out who you are as you're trying to assimilate and also honor your parents. It's this strange frame. And I think identities are messy. And the first place I understood that acutely was in the arts, that everything was going to be messy and that I was not going to be like my American-born high school friends. And my experience was also not going to be like my Egyptian-born immigrant parents and that it was going to be in an in-between. And I think art is really good at getting at that in-between of things in a way that, again, really speaks to the nuance and complexity of identity. So I think growing up, like, I remember some of the first things I saw and read and experienced that just re- shifted everything about my identity towards the world. So I'm still actually working through that right now because I'm trying to figure out how to talk to so many people I love who have not yet made sense of their identities in a moment where I want them to let art lead and not Mm. politics, not the news. I'm like, how do I swap Art 21 in for like the news station? Like, I think there's another way to think about the world around you and I think the thing actually I am realizing the most after this 11 weeks of quarantine, this protest is we do not have enough art opportunities to hear artists' perspectives on the world. Mm. Not just about their work, their designers, artists, journalists, writers, like I want to know what you think about the world. And I think those conversations happen, of course, in secret in our communities because there are friend groups. But I want you on late night television. I want you on the morning show. I want you to give people language for how to make sense of how they feel. And I think art did that a lot for me as like a teen who was deeply confused about was I brown or was I black? I didn't want to tell anybody I was Muslim after 9-11 because it felt really dirty and it was really hard to like admit that thing out loud in New York. All of those things were confusing and artists helped us make sense of them, I think, for my siblings and I. 
Mm. I want to bring up United States Artists, the organization you run. Have you seen COVID-19 impacting your organization and how? And I also understand that you're one of the grant makers behind the Artist Relief, which since mid-March has been giving Mm -hmm. these grants to artists. Could you talk about how that came about and how much has it raised to date? A little over 13 million so far. Mm. The best thing about United States artists, this is sort of a boring detail, but we can give money to people. Like literally, that's actually really challenging Mm. in the structures of the U.S. government to for me to give another human being money and then to not expect that human being to report back on what they did with that money. That's a structural problem. And so I think when COVID was happening, a United States artist, we were really reflecting on how this was like an interesting tool at a time when the the early days of the pandemic felt like it was really going to affect gig workers or working class people that needed cash super fast. And we understood that we were a mechanism that could actually just do that. We just give you money, we walk away. And so I think that early on became super clear. I think the thing we were worried about is for so many artists, it was like over in a matter of hours. Mm. And we knew that, but I think then actually subsequently working with six other organizations to launch Artist Relief and then getting these applications, it made that so clear. It's like people who were okay, but they couldn't afford to have every single gig canceled. They couldn't afford to have every lecture canceled. And they went from being okay to like literally zero cash flow. And they had no idea for how long. We still don't know for how long. When will society reopen in this way? To be in that position to just wake up one day and be like, there's just no cash at all. And then to know it's not like there's a job you can apply for or a program that will save you. We knew that. I think the thing that's made artist relief hurt harder is the range of artists in our pool. And watching upcoming artists all the way up to some like masters in our field, for lack of a better word, and to realize just how precarious the cultural sector really is and how success doesn't necessarily translate to any kind of economic security. And I think we're all really reckoning with with how to contribute to that moving forward as we understand that the economic effects of the pandemic will far outlive the quarantine. Mm. And the expansion beyond just uh, visual artists, I mean, restaurant chefs, basically anyone who's contributing to culture got screwed on day one. Totally. Because there was no fail-safe system. Yep. And we, you know, in ours, we fund all kinds of makers. So we fund architects, fashion designers, filmmakers, visual artists, writers. So it's like also watching how damning all of those economies are Mm. and then going one step further. And then to your point, so many artists exist at the infrastructure of more than one labor force. Like they are both bartenders and poets. Yeah, They are both like nannies and playwrights. And so I think, again, they always, I think we all moved thinking if one thing fell, the other thing would pick it up. But for many people, they were like, I figured out how to have more than one income stream. And overnight, all of them evaporated. Yeah, And I think that part was painful. Do you think that, you know, you spoke earlier about the art worlds, which I think is a very important distinction that you pluralize that because mm-hmm. often it's referred to as one art world and I don't know where that is. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not West Chelsea, you know, and so <laughs> uh, it gives way too much power to a certain sector or a certain dealer, basically. But as we emerge from this and speaking specifically about the market, do you think that content, the actual content of the work will somehow be tied to its value or are we just so far away from 
a market shift where the value of the work and the content have anything to do with each other? I don't know. I don't know. I think that the market sometimes tries to behave as a corrective for certain institutional gaps, right? Like today, the cacophony of Black artists that are like, don't you dare ask me to sit on your panel or acquire my work or sell my painting if you are not actually thinking deeply about why the hell people are marching. And so I think sometimes the con- I wonder about, as I think we are all going to feel some sense of rage or guilt or a combination of the two based on everything that is happening in the world. And sometimes I wonder if collecting an artist assuages that in some way, right? Like if I care about these issues, I will just buy art that speaks to those issues or is made by those people. That's always sort of been one way that the market operates. I don't know if it'll go like pedal to the metal when this thing starts to die down and then all of a sudden we're swarmed with stuff. I'm also waiting for like the great American novel about this time, yeah. love in the time of coronavirus. We were talking to Chantal Martin the other day and we were speaking about this very issue and she's been doing talks with artists for the last few weeks, panel discussions. Mm-hmm. And she said the one thing that all the artists experience and share is that the work they make is completely misunderstood by the collectors that buy it. 100%. 100%. And it's not all. Yeah, of course. Nothing's all. But it's, it's even evidenced in the placement in homes, the stories that are told at the dinner party, the way the work moves through a secondary market, the way the work is collected, the way the work is shown at triennials and biennials outside of a context for that work. Yeah, I don't know what will happen after this. I mean, frankly, I think a lot of museums are wondering how they'll survive after this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of galleries are wondering if there will be an appetite. Mm-hmm. There was this decade of massive expansion, mm-hmm. specifically in this visual art world that New York is the sort of concentric center of that thing, right? Like there was a huge moment of expansion and now... I don't think we'll see that for a really long time. So I don't know what they'll do to recover. I know in the meantime, if people want to buy art at the moment, like I'd go right to the artist right now. Yeah. I think a lot of artists are strapped for cash flow because again, the world stopped still very suddenly. And I think bringing art into your home at whatever price you can afford it, if you can afford it, is a healing. Mm -hmm. But I also think that art is not going to save us. That's not what's going to happen. I think art is just one way to maybe encourage people that we should be saved, period. <laughs> and yeah. here are some steps to maybe think about that thing, but the art itself won't do it. So I don't know what the market will do. But the art does have the power to inform policymakers. I mean, we've seen that over and over. Yeah. You know, defacement as a painting meant something. Totally. I think today I've been wondering, because a lot of conversations in the art worlds are pinging around about like the WPA, the New Deal, like all of these massive legislative infrastructures that came out to pull out of such economic despair. And it's like, you listen to these calls and you like turn on the news and you're like, this government? We're expecting that level of coordination and sophistication from this government? Like, what are you all talking about? Like the context of the United States in the early 20th century was totally different. And so now I actually wonder if the most fascinating thing artists are doing now is against corporations. Yeah. Which seem like this wild, dominant government structure like we're all living under right now. Mm. And so I think it's been interesting. Yeah, that is the new opposition. I mean, it's very clear to us as a society now that corporations are running the government. 
Yeah. So don't complain about the government, complain yeah. about the corporation. I mean, yeah. for a moment, we can speak quickly about Silicon Valley and its role recently, yeah. you know, kind of incredibly late to the party. Yeah. Do you think that Jack Dorsey's moves last week against Trump were a personal spat, or do you think they represent a shift towards actual seeking truth on the platforms that they own instead of hiding behind this kind of bullshit Section 230 law? That means absolutely nothing. I think it indicates a shift. I just don't think we'll see it very quickly. I think Jack will stand alone for a while. Mm-hmm. And even now, while I appreciate the thing Dr. Dorsey did, it's, it's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough. Mm. One thing I'm really struck by is um, the backdrop of like 2020 feeling like both 1918 and 1968 all at the same time. But we're doing it under this veil of like a corporate overlording, like even down to like, we just sent, two men into space, but owned by a private company, like the meta sort of, it's not even government anymore. And so I think, what is their moral responsibility to this new world? And it's everything from the massive corporate giants all the way to Silicon Valley, like you designed this space we're all living in. And now I think you have a responsibility as the host of that world to make some rules for it so that it can move forward. So I appreciated what Jack Dorsey did, but then watching, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, slap Jack on the wrist for it. I mean, I also remember this is all legislative lobbying. Absolutely. Facebook has to protect a certain thing so that they can just continue to expand in the way that they expand. And when one of them falls, it affects how the rest of them might have to behave. So I don't think we'll see a ton of folks like follow Jack's footsteps. I don't even know if we see Jack follow his own footsteps. Yeah. But it wasn't important just like, moment to to stop gaslighting social media users into thinking that the corporations aren't complicit in how information and violence is spread on those platforms. You touched on it briefly, but I would love to hear more of your thoughts on experiencing the rocket launch this weekend, you know, as we send two white men into space while the protests are happening on the ground and its relationship to July 20th, 69, when there was great civil unrest and a huge race issues happening on the ground as we send people to the moon. I mean, I think it's a really dystopic symbol. It feels like something out of an Octavia Butler novel. Mm -hmm. Season finale. (laughs) Yeah, the season finale. Everything from the fact that it was a privately owned rocket to the fact that it was these two white men to the fact that they were literally speeding away from the planet. At the actual like speed of light or whatever, not a scientist, first to admit it. But and it having to be rescheduled because of weather. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and the people that were like, "Thank you for restoring my faith in humanity." Launch America. Yeah, it's, it's just right like, there on the logo. What? Like <laughs> launch America right off this planet is what they're yeah. actually saying. But I guess I wonder, like, is that what people want? Do they want to leave the planet? Can you so not see how broken the system is that your solution is to leave the planet and what, redo this? Yeah, break another one? Yeah, terraform it somewhere else. I think the thing I can't stop asking is like, are people happy? Are rich people happy? Are white people happy? Like, are you not working harder than your safety net? Like, are you not worried about your kids or the planet? Are you not? I just feel like no one is happy. I can't imagine anybody feels happy. And I I honestly also say that as someone who runs an organization and speaks to so many different people across a massive wealth disparity. And it feels like 
it's not really working for anyone. Mm-hmm. It's just killing a very specific population, right? That's a very different extremity. They cannot be compared. But the idea that we just launched a rocket and we actually have these ideas that will bypass Earth and build on space. And I'm like, to do what? It was very strange to explain it to, um, we have two kids staying at our house right now. And, you know, they're like hearing the news and like watching the streets and then also being told that this incredible thing just happened. And I, just watching them try to make sense of it I think really paints a picture of exactly how intense the country is right now. Elon Musk should give a lot of money to bail funds. Elon Musk should sell a couple of rockets and like bail out half the country. Mm -hmm. What's your greatest hope as we come out of this, this being this period of time, the season finale? Yeah. My greatest hope is that we will honestly give poor and working class people the dignity they deserve. And we will stop demonizing certain behaviors and certain things that make us uncomfortable and not understand them as, like, my hope coming out of this is this, and I think art can actually do this, and I think art does this already, but it needs a bigger audience, is it isn't fair. The deck is stacked against entire peoples. It doesn't matter how hard you work or what you sacrifice, and I think even doing something as simple as a relief fund for artists turned into, how are you going to prove what they're doing with it? It's $5,000. This anxiety around helping poor and working class people, around helping people in any kind of precarity, I hope that a combination of a pandemic and incredible systemic injustice that erupts in this type of unrest, this SBA thing about the difference between a small business and a big corporation, I hope it really shines a light on how much the entire system has to be redistributed and how unfair it is. No one should be ashamed of what they're experiencing right now. It's like the system put you here. And I hope maybe that shame as we come out of this shifts to the system itself. And then the people who built it help reorient us because it's This is too much for people. We're not designed as a species to withstand this kind of thing. And then adding the economic vulnerability, it's just not fair. So yeah, I want more dignity. I want more dignity for people that have had that completely stripped away from them. Dina, it's so amazing to talk to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.